This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Nancy Schatzman-Steinhardt, who's Professor of East Asian Art and Curator of Chinese Art at the University of Pennsylvania. And she'll be talking about her new book, Chinese Architecture, A History, which was published this year, 2019, by Princeton University Press. Civilization is a word which should probably be used sparingly, if ever. But this book and the enormous scope of what it covers perhaps merits a rare exception being made. Nancy Steinhardt's Chinese Architecture, A History is as difficult a book to introduce as any we've covered on this podcast, I think, since it essentially presents the architectural history of an entire, yes, civilization. From the very earliest traces of buildings and construction on the territory of what we today call China, right up to the present day, the author builds on her unmatched experience and knowledge to tell the story of building practices, principles, and techniques across space and time charting both the extraordinary consistency of form, which allows us to meaningfully discuss something called Chinese architecture, and every nuanced twist and turn in the evolution of form and content over recent millennia, Steinhardt is a truly breathtaking survey of a vast and endlessly engaging subject. From temples to palaces, tombs, houses, caves, bridges, and many other structures, the author delves not only into matters of architecture, but also adjacent concerns from art and urban planning as well, inevitably, as the political, economic, and religious contexts which have underlain some of the most important developments in Chinese building. Lavishly illustrated with beautiful photographic images, many by the author herself, and amazingly intricate diagrams from technical plans of buildings to sketches of ancient city layouts, this book, for all its indescribability, can at least be summed up as an extraordinary volume which anyone with even a passing interest in this subject should pick up. But it's likely the author can do a much better job than I can of describing and talking about the book. So I'll say, Nancy Steinhardt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, great to have you on. Uh, And I have to say, it's an extraordinary, just an amazing book, which uh, rewards hours of uh, exploration and and engrossment. So I'm looking forward to chatting about it. Um, But before we do, um, perhaps I could ask you something of your background and, and how you came to uh, be, be interested in Chinese architecture in the first place. Uh, I mean, you have a great deal of experience in this area, so I'm sure we'd love to uh, hear hear a lot about it if, if you could uh, give us a give us a sense of it. I, I guess the beginning was Chinese language. I'm one of the many people who would say that if the bug bites, don't fight it. Um, I've I've loved Chinese characters and learning the language since I first saw them. And I began in a summer program in St. Louis, Missouri, um, when I was 13 years old. So I came to college with some background in characters. And then, like many people, I walked into a survey of Western art. But somehow, architecture was always what I was drawn to. And I took a survey of Asian art as a sophomore. And the professor included architecture 
So I really didn't realize at that time, I'm in the 1970s now, I didn't realize that uh, people who studied the arts of China didn't study architecture as frequently as Chinese bronzes, Chinese painting, of course, or Buddhist sculpture. Um, but the, the other fact that loomed large was that China wasn't opened. And so being one of the people who was studying China from afar in the 1970s, there was always this understanding that a person couldn't really understand China until she stood there. And I am of a generation who was in both India and Japan before I was ever in China. I think that certainly helped my understanding of architecture. And I'm someone who wrote her dissertation in completion before I ever stood in China. So it was based entirely uh, from texts. But, but somehow I was drawn to architecture and I began teaching a course on Chinese architecture, my, I think my second year of teaching. And I have taught university level for 38 years. And so we won't, we won't talk about age, but you can do a few calculations if you want to. So one of the so uh, if you've noticed, I dedicate the book to the students, because one of the things that I've realized uh, being someone interested in architecture is that if the arts of China are not a subject that's readily available, architecture has been even a little bit more remote. And so I've always felt it's important for me to talk to or to write for anyone out there to experience China. This book that we're talking about tonight is a very visual book. And I would encourage anybody who wants to read it to look at the pictures as much as read the text. Um, when I teach, I, I'm one, I still don't allow people to come to class uh, with their computer. I want eyes looking at a building and entering a building, etc. So, so that so that uh, this is kind of long way of saying that this book, which was many years in the making, has been taught to students and is written for people to understand architecture. And it really did begin with the question on my first trip to China in 1983. Uh, and I remember uh, the setting. I can see the hotel lobby and I can see the person I was talking to, but I don't remember his name. He was political science professor. And he said to me, what should I, he knew about my interests. And he said, what should I be looking at when I am taken to a Chinese building? And it took me many years to understand what he was asking me. But that's really the question I tried to answer in this book. What he smart person who knew Chinese, who's studying the politics of the times was asking me, is don't all these buildings really look very much alike? And if they do, why are they interesting? And this is, this is something that I think a person who's interested in Chinese architecture has to tackle head on. Don't be embarrassed to say, yeah, a lot of timber frames, a lot of ceramic tile roofs, they all do kind of look alike. And I hope that the book answers the question of why. And it's a political question, and it's a question that's answered through millennia of reuse and addressing the past to serve a more present context. 
So, so if a person reads the book and looks just at the pictures, and I think we have about 400 images in it, and I, I, I didn't have to work hard, uh, Princeton's a wonderful publisher, to convince them, but a lot of presses would never give an author, author uh, 400 images, most of them color, and yes, as you mentioned, most of them my own. This is, this is a book about what it is to see and walk in and experience a Chinese building, but there's, there's uh, an intellectual package around it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an absolutely amazing uh, kind of record of, of all kinds of things. But uh, yeah, from a purely aesthetic point of view, the uh, the images and, and the, the, the rich sense of color and, and, uh, and, and, you know, yeah, real vivid um, way that, as you mentioned, it really brings you into the buildings and into the, uh, the, the settings that they're in um, is a real incredible strength of, of the book, I think. Um, but I, I guess, uh, I mean, we can move in since uh, you've kind of brought, set us up pretty well there with the question that the book seeks to answer. Um, we can jump into the, uh, the introduction uh, where you begin um, in the Forbidden City or specifically with the, uh, the Hall of Supreme Harmony, uh, which lies there, a very well-known building, and one which, as you mentioned, you know, may superficially resemble many, many other Chinese buildings across the extent of China. Um, but you use the, this as a kind of way into talking about some of the fundamental features of Chinese buildings that you, that you explore throughout. So could you give us a bit of a sense of what those are? What are the kind of uh, key uh, uh, answers to those questions? Yes. So, so the hub, if someone walks into a class, takes a lecture, or takes a trip to China, the one building that person always wants to see is uh, somewhere inside. The one place that person wants to go is the Forbidden City, and the building that they are drawn to is the Hall of Supreme Harmony. So what's extraordinary about the Hall of Supreme Harmony is that it is made of 10,000 straight pieces of wood. There isn't even a curved piece. Anyone who can cut a piece of timber and can follow the directions can put the building together. And someone living in the countryside in uh, a humble dwelling in a mountain village also lives in a dwelling that's supported by a timber frame and has a roof on top of it that's made of a different material. So that was that, I think, was the question that I was being asked that day many years ago. Why, what civilization can we think of in the world in which the emperor lives in a building that's put together the way the most humble citizen of his country lives and in which an emperor lives according to building standards that were enacted in the second, maybe even third millennium BCE. This is, it's really, it's, it's uh, you know, again, it's kind of the field defining question of Chinese architecture. And uh, yes, if you, if you have stood in the Forbidden City or you close your eyes and look at it, it's clear that centrality is important. The most important buildings are on one single line. There's no, I'm mentioning the Hall of Supreme Harmony, but it's not an individual building. It's always seen in the context of other buildings. Four-sided enclosure defines a courtyard. It's extraordinarily low. And if we think about any uh, equivalent palatial building, 
take Versailles, but take any palace from any time, anywhere in the world. The, the materials are not perishable. And, and they are. And it's not because of the Chinese philosophy of the transience of life. No, it's because this adaptability makes it possible for an emperor to live the way the most eminent Buddhist monk lives, the way that the temple in which people pay homage to Confucius lives, and most uh, it occurs. And most important, this building defines China. As we as we get into the podcast, I'm sure the question will come up about reactions of other civilizations, Chinese architecture, and impact. But the fact is that anyone anywhere in Asia, Japan, Mongolia, uh, Thailand, India, Iran, always knows that he is approaching the Chinese sphere long before he's in China. And that's because of, because of the ceramic tile roof that projects Above the law, uh, above the walls that enclose the building. So, so this, I mean, people certainly draw comparisons between Japanese architecture and Chinese. A lot of Japanese architecture looks similar, but Japanese architecture is a much more diverse tradition. Uh, the same buildings are not used for Shinto that are used for Buddhism, that are used for a palace, even though I could argue for you that the layout of Issei Shrine follows a Chinese temple complex. This is a, it's a different tradition. China defines herself far beyond her borders, and therefore China has been able to survive through all the dynasties that you find listed in any book or any study and has been the building system that anyone who wants to build an empire has turned to in East Asia. I was, I was last summer in the northernmost part of Mongolia, very near the Russian border, and I went to, was taken to a monastery that I, I had wanted to see for a very long time. It was built in the 18th century. And it's it's not not to give you a bold generalization, but yes, it's very Chinese in style. And I was traveling with Mongol colleagues, and I turned to one and I said, "Well, does don't you ever wonder why this looks so Chinese?" And he said to me, "Well, what other building system is there?" Um, I gather information like this every time I'm in the field. What I I've, I've said in introductions to uh, other books that I've written that the people I really have to thank are the countless people who are in villages, who have farmland that they let me cross, who will put me in their truck and take me to a building that I want to find. This, this, is, you know, this is the system everywhere. And this, this really simple, right, immediate, response, well, what other system is there? I was, I was near the Russian border. I was near Tuva. And this, this is an extraordinary building that I saw. <laughs> right, right. And, well, and you described this, this amazing consistency across both time and space, in a sense. I mean, and, and, and also, I, I suppose, the other dimension that, that 
the consistency applies across is is rank, as you mentioned too. So the fact that the emperor or the forbidden city, the um, uh, hall of supreme harmony that we just mentioned in the heart of Beijing, has certain features in common with the, uh, yeah the, a humble <laughs> rural dwelling that you may have tramped across fields to reach. So I just wonder what consequences does that have for our uh, our classification of these buildings, and especially when it comes to the time side of things. I mean, the consistency has endured for many centuries, as you lay out in the book. How does this uh, affect the way that Chinese architecture is periodized um, in Europe? It- so, I mean, of course, of course, a person who's trained to look at a building can put a date on it. And what architectural historians in China usually say is within 100 years, one can always tell the date of a building. But much more important than any feature that defines date is rank. And this is also something that builds into the system of adaptability and and the possibility of using a temple for taking a temple and turning it into a palace by removing the statues and putting a throne on the altar. But anyone looking at a building can tell you the rank. The Hall of Supreme Harmony is as high as it gets. And uh And other buildings in the Forbidden City are not of the same rank. The roofs are different. The rules are very, very simple. A roof with five spines, a simple hipped roof, for reasons that there's no text that tells a person why, but for reasons that aren't known specifically, it is on top of a more eminent building. And that's true in the 8th century and in the 13th century and in the 18th century. Someone from the 8th century who was reborn in the 18th century would always know the building is high rank. Now, what this also means is that this is a system without architects. There are books, a famous one called Architecture Without Architects, and it deals mostly with, with buildings in sub-Saharan Africa. This is, this is a Chinese tradition is a very different kind of building tradition. What this means is that give someone the module, which is not a specific dimension, but it's a relative proportion of one piece of a bracket set to the other pieces of the bracket set. Give the person the module. Every piece of timber can be cut, and anyone who's illiterate can assemble it. So this is, this is the other really extraordinary feature. Craftsmen are building the directives come from the court. The manuals are written at court. Uh, Sometimes people try to argue that the head of the directorate for construction was an architect. Well, people don't really use the word architect. Was someone interested in building? Probably, but he's not somebody who knew how to cut wood or to carve marble. These These are all craftsmen. This is a system that's completely controlled by the court, and the rank of a building tells tells anyone standing outside of it how important it is. But to know its purpose, um, one of the most interesting projects I've ever worked on was a book that I wrote on Chinese mosques. And there's a little bit about mosques in this book. But what was apparent to me when I first began going to mosques and the famous ones that a tourist would go to or in Beijing and in Xi'an is that 
the courtyards, that is the four-sided enclosure, the buildings, that uh, the, the one main building on the axis, the roof types, the use of the module. It's not clear that a person's in a mosque until she reads an inscription or goes inside a building. The same format can exchange for a high-ranking Buddhist monastery, Confucian shrine, or a palace. And the mosques also had to be uh, sanctioned by the emperor. A person can't just build anything important. And even a house probably had to be permitted by the villagers, or at least a person had to be able to afford land, and he had to buy it from somebody. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, it's a really uniquely, it's a unique system. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, for one thing, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, your interlocutor in the early days there um, was probably very relieved, as many people may be, to, to be able to uh, uh, well, yeah, breathe a sigh of relief at, at, at noticing close resemblances between buildings and not therefore being worried about being a charlatan. And, well, and, you know, a smart person will say, I'm missing something. They all look alike. How could this possibly be interesting? Mm, 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 no. Well, the, the the question is, why do they all look alike? China is an extremely sophisticated civilization. Yeah. That would have been capable of building all kinds of buildings. Right, right, and 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 yeah, and I guess it just it, it reframes our whole approach to uh, to to time and to the way that. Um, we understand, uh, yeah, kind of time to be marked in material terms, I suppose. But nevertheless, the book does uh, does move forward through time because I guess you have to have to find find some kind of uh, structure somehow. Um, so I thought we'd uh, we'd, we'd jump in uh, to the to the main chapters themselves. Um, you begin with a kind of um, uh, tracing of the very earliest archaeology uh, from China and and the kind of uh, genesis, if you like, of, of buildings and cities. Um, but I wanted to kind of begin, perhaps, if we could, with uh, chapters two and three, where you're basically dealing with the, the Qin and the Han dynasties, both very early, uh, important dynasties around 2000 years ago, um, and, and I guess formative for all kinds of reasons to, um, to Chinese history ever since. Um, this is where we get our first look at Chang'an, which uh, the, the same city, uh, or roughly the same city at Xi'an, which you just mentioned, uh, where many of those mosques are. Um, Chang'an during the Han Dynasty in particular uh, seems to be a, have been a real locus for the uh, uh, elaboration of many of the principles which would be employed throughout uh, subsequent history. So could you give us a bit of a sense of what uh, Han Dynasty Chang'an was like uh, and what, it, what features it had? So the, by by the time the other wonderful aspect of Chinese civilization that includes architecture is that even though a lot of buildings look alike, the textual records are extraordinary. And the, and one of the things that's been exciting, is, you know, in studying the architecture of China, is to have read the texts first. As I as I mentioned, I'd read a lot before I ever got to China. And to see how the city plays itself, how the layout becomes the layout that we're presented in a text. So some people think there, there's a, there is a passage in one of the histories of the Han Dynasty that says that the city is laid out to imitate the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. And a very clever uh, Chinese sociologist around 1970 drew, took a picture of the plan of Chang'an 
And he put the Big Dipper on top of the Little Dipper and said, well, I can see that this is what might have happened. The reason people wonder about that city is because it's not four-sided and the palace isn't in the center. So in a sense, this idea of centrality, the emperor in the center and everything built out around him didn't happen in Han Chang'an. Uh, Chang'an is a city of palaces. It's a city of seven palaces, six inside the city and walls and one outside the walls. And it's a city that was built for the use of the emperor, Seven palaces, the six palaces within the wall. That's, that's kind of unusual, and that's going to change. China will move towards a one-palace system. But the other aspect of Chang'an that uh, archaeologists proved, and yes, this book deals not just with standing buildings, but buildings that get reconstructed from the ground up. A person can take a point between the two main palaces in Chang'an and draw a straight line between the tombs of the first uh, emperor of the dynasty that built Chang'an, that's Western Han Dynasty. It's still near the end of the third uh, century BCE. I'm, I'm just before the, around the year 200 BCE. And keep going and come to the Yellow River. And then he can go southward and he can come to a depression. If you keep going in the north, you come to a shrine in Inner Mongolia. So there's actually a vertical line that cuts smack through the center of the city. And then if you draw a perpendicular line and go eastward, it hits the coast and the coast near Shandong province, eastern China, where the first emperor built one of his traveling palaces, one of the palaces where he went for leisure. I suspect there's something in the west, maybe in Gansu province, that would have finished this perfect, uh, this two lines of the same length that bisected the empire. But that's, that's the most extraordinary feature of Chang'an that really, I think, was the vision of uh, the famous first emperor, first Qin Shi Huangdi, the one that everybody knows from the Terracotta Warriors. I think his vision is probably played out there. He had many palaces and probably he would have built almost countless palaces if he had lived long enough. Chang'an also, oh, and, and, and the way this continues, if you've ever looked at a Chinese house in the countryside from any time period, take the 19th century, take houses that survive on Taiwan, the ancestors have the main chamber in the center, and then the oldest son will be to the right, and then the next son to the left, and then the right and the left, the house will build out. The tombs of the emperors of the Han Dynasty built out from the emperor and empress on either side of the vertical line to the right, the left, the right, the left. So the ideal universe actually is architecturally laid out to the extent that a person can, can use archaeology so far to, to determine it. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, catches for anybody who writes about Chinese architecture, I'm always saying to myself, 
this is true unless excavation changes it. Right. <laughs> so, right. You know, but but this this excavation, this this layout of Chang'an became known around the late 1990s. Oh wow! And to me, it's one of the most extraordinary discoveries in the history uh, of Chinese architecture. Mm. Yeah, well, then these kind of cosmological, I guess, principles and, and spatial arrangements do continue to endure and play out. And then, you know, and then the tombs, I mean, there, there are some kind of rules of thumb that the tomb is built of permanent materials, it's for a permanent afterlife, it replicates the house. Well, houses didn't look like tombs. Houses were probably larger than tombs, and tombs aren't always laid out symmetrically, and the goal of architecture is usually bilateral symmetry. But there are a few two-story tombs. And this is something else that nobody reads about. There was no text that told anyone, but there, there are a couple Han tombs where a person goes down to the lower level. That's also kind of interesting because Chinese architecture tends to be one story. Land ownership is expressed by building out and showing the wealth that a family or that the emperor has. So, yeah, for Han, the tombs are really extraordinarily important. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and I think, I think the way that you move between these, these lot, many different kinds of, of structure, from palaces to tombs to ritual spaces and, and uh, also, you know, caves and carvings and gardens uh, gives a really full, rich picture of of, of all of the different uh, ways that some of these principles play out. Um, but moving forward through the book, I mean, uh, the chapters on on the Han, the Qin covering kind of a couple of thousand years ago or so, are succeeded by uh, several chapters documenting, uh, I, I suppose, a period of some, somewhat greater fragmentation and, uh, and 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 the way that at least politically China was riven by quite a lot of different uh, states and statelets and, and different dynasties taking so, shape in different parts so, of the country. Um, and those principles kind of endure even throughout those. Um, yes. So I wanted to make just one comment about those chapters. Uh, listeners, uh, I, I will say now that before we began this, um, Ad told me the chapters he was most interested in. And I was interested in the fact that the two chapters between Han and Tang weren't the ones you had questions about. So I would also say I wrote a book on these four centuries, between on the architecture of these four centuries, and it's because there's almost nothing that survives. There are only two pagodas above ground that a person can firmly date to the 6th century. Everything is based on excavation and text. So what's extraordinary is that if we move to Tang, which is another dynasty that readers uh, will, readers or listeners will know about, another empire really that stretches from Korea into Central Asia, the fact that the principles of Han survived is because during this age of turmoil, which is what I call it in the book that I wrote, 
16 states in the north, more than 31 polities rise and fall, and they use the remnant of Han. And this is the first playing out of this system that spreads far beyond the center, far beyond Chang'an. And um, military garrisons, military leaders, or people who aspire to empire turn to Han and build cities that look like it and build palaces and build tombs so that when Tang comes and reunifies, the whole system is there ready for China again. So it's really those, so those centuries loom large, I, you know, I think in terms of why Chinese architecture could continue. Sure, right. Well, and yes, and the listeners should be uh, well, well advised to uh, go and check out uh, your book on that era in addition. In addition to this one, of course, but I suppose in in a uh, a kind of a he- headline attracted way, I was uh, wanted to sort of address some of the big the big hitters, uh, and so Kang uh, had an inevitable pull as uh, as as I guess it has throughout uh, the ensuing centuries. So we move up to uh, yes, I suppose Sui and Tang, so kind of late sixth century up to the tenth uh, century, um, and. Uh, you, uh, Chang'an remains, of course, an anchor, given that it was this huge cosmopolitan mercantilist Tang capital. Um, but what had changed by the time that Tang uh, took took or had Chang'an? Well, so the, the location of the capital moves. It's a brand new location. Uh, the palaces are actually in the north. That's a change. They're not in the center. Texts address this by saying that well, the center is still the central line, but the emperor, the emperor, the first emperor of Tang who built that capital never really liked the layout of the capital. It's not clear why. And he quickly moves his palace city outside the city walls. And this is something that's also always true about Chinese architecture. It has to work. Real people have to live there. And if there's a discrepancy with the module or a discrepancy between the text and the reality, uh, the wood is cut by human hands and it has to function for its occupant. So it's, but it's, it's, a new, it's a new city, but this extraordinary city with a population of more than one million immediately became the draw for Japan, especially if you've been to Nara, you've been to Kyoto, you know that the Japanese, not by conquest, but intentionally for the purposes of building a great empire, turned to Chang'an for their model. So did the peoples of the Korean peninsula. Those, those cities aren't as well studied, but they are laid out based on the module, uh, based on the system of Chang'an. But the other amazing thing about the uh, the Tang dynasty, because we're only now in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, is that every kind of architecture that one would address in studying any civilization survives. First, not just surviving bridge, the first suspension bridge, several pagodas of different kinds, And then, of course, the extraordinary wooden buildings on Mount Wutai and Greater Wutai in Shanxi province, and also um, the palaces. The other other aspect of Tang that comes forward is this is the first period 
when people can look at a humble temple. Uh, the, the survival is survival is the reflection of warfare and people being able to afford to rebuild and conquest, et cetera, et cetera. But the three oldest buildings in China, three oldest wooden buildings date to the eighth and ninth centuries. And they're in a Shanxi province near Mount Wutai, and they're all humble. So Tang is also the period from which a person can see this amazing contrast between high rank and low rank. Right, right. And I, I think I was glad to learn that, actually, because I think some of the time that the, the, the uh, tourism, um, I guess, gods manage to market things in a way that suggests that the only way to see Tang is in Nara. Uh, so you have to go to Japan to see Tang or to see the Horyuji or, or some other uh, ancient wooden structures. But um, actually to know that those ones are there in Shanxi uh, was, was a great thing to learn uh, from the book. Um, but you, you also kind of outline how, uh, in some ways, whilst uh, taking that long legacy of, of Han, Tang regularized things still further and made Chang'an an even more perfect grid uh, and, and kind of made it a more sort of mirrored, symmetrical structure. Um, and, I, and I guess that then takes us forward um, to beyond the Tang, um, and especially in a couple of centuries later, early in the uh, 12th century, um, a whole uh, code, if you like, or a, a kind of a, a volume of uh, guidelines, the uh, Yingzao Fa Shi, uh, was uh, appeared as a sort of first uh, uh, extant elaboration of what the principles of Chinese architecture might be. And you point out uh, in chapter nine, which brings us forward a few chapters from the Tang, um, that uh, you haven't yet used the word architect. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview why why that was. Um, but what was this sort of treatise uh, that appeared um, in the Song period in uh, yeah, 11, 1103, I think was the earliest version um, what did it say? What was it? What, what kind of a document was it? So it, it is. Ingzao Fa sure means building standards. Literally, it's issued at the court. It's compiled by a group of officials who work in a bureau with pictures. It's it's an illustrated text. Some people debate whether it the illustrations actually date from the thirteenth century, a twelfth century. Maybe they do. Some of them might be later. But the fundamental purpose of the Ingzao Fa is to lay out the rank and the module. And it tells a person what a high-ranking building is and a low-ranking building is. It tells a person that there are eight grades of bracket sets, and it tells you how to count the number of pieces in bracket sets to know what the rank is. It tells you that by measuring the uh, cross-section of a bracket arm, you know how distant one pillar should be from another and whether there should be additional bracket sets between pillars across the facade of a building. And it is built for craftsmen and it uses the words craftsmen and there is really no concept of a creative architect. Some people, and, and then the, the, so it's the first complete manual, uh, 34 chapters. There are names of buildings from earlier times. There's one from the 10th century called the Wood Classic, but just a few pages survive. There are dictionaries of terms that include glosses on architectural terms. But the Ingzal Fasher begins with, uh, with a dictionary, kind of elaborated dictionary. It starts with the word for eminent hall, not just hall, but a high-ranking or eminent hall, 
and it tells the builder what it is. Now, who read this? Not craftsmen. Officials read it who are then charged with deciding where high-ranking or middle-ranking or low-ranking mm-hmm. buildings should be. I see. And so... And, and, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary text, and it, you know, it, it gives you different manipulations within the rank of a building. It gives you four fundamental ground plans. They're actually right there. So that if you look at a building, you say, well, how many rings of columns are there? Are there columns inside or outside the building? It's all right, in Ings right. Al-Fasher. And to have that kind of record, I mean, uh, as a way of uh, sort of cementing things, I wonder uh, if that then contributed to to the, the, the subsequent endurance of these principles. I mean, uh, we mentioned uh, just earlier that uh, there was a period of great political turmoil during which these um, styles and, and principles of architectural design endured. Um, and I suppose moving forward beyond the beyond the song and and the jinn as well, which were, were uh, dynasties where a lot of this. Um, uh, a lot of what was elaborated in the Ings al was uh, was kind of uh, played out. Um, we move into a period when, uh, from the uh, 13th, in the 13th and 14th century, when China uh, was ruled uh, by non-Chinese dynasties who were uh, nomadic or semi-nomadic in background. And I suppose this raises a lot of questions about what, what kind of cities did, uh, did these dynasties create or what kind of... Uh, permanent structures how was their relationship with permanent structures given that uh, many of the the, the the people the yuan dynasty in particular founded by uh, kublai khan uh, how did these people treat uh, the built architecture of of what we're calling uh, china um, given that as you say in the book they had a reputation as city destroyers so what, what, what was the interaction of the kind of nomadic steppe people who ruled china with uh, with buildings so one, one more comment on Ings al-Fashur is that one of the pursuits of study in China has always been what extent to what extent it was used. The principles actually are used in the ninth century in the Tang Dynasty. So this book is based on earlier books. Books are portable. Pictures are portable. So that if I am a semi-nomad and I am coming from the north or the northeast, and I see these Chinese roofs projecting above low walls, I can turn to someone and say, I want that, because that symbolizes empire for me. And the fact is that if we move if we move up, fast forward to the Mongols and to Kublai Khan, one of the most extraordinary facts about Kublai Khan is that his chief advisor who designed not just his great capital, Daidu, which is on the ruins of Beijing, but also his Xanadu, Coleridge's Xanadu, turned to classical texts. And when Kublai said, give me a Chinese city that manifests empire, he took a classical text from circa 1000, about 1200 BCE, that says that the ruler lives in the center facing south and that the city has 12 gates around it and has major north, south, east, west streets, Kublai's capital was more orthodox in plan than any capital of any Chinese emperor up to that time. As I mentioned, in the Tang Dynasty, the emperor didn't like his palace and he moved outside the city walls. Kublai lived right inside the city, but 
what Chinese architecture made possible for him was that he lived in tents. He and his all the princes of the blood, all of his blood relatives, lived behind Chinese walls in tents, behind three sets of walls, completely concealed, and they hung animal skins on their tents, not Chinese paintings like an emperor would. And Chinese architecture also made that possible. Mm, mm. I, I mean, this this beautiful passage actually, where you where you outline how it was that the, the privacy principle, which uh, comes up right at the beginning of the book, allowed uh, uh, Mongol uh, rulers to camp inside compounds um, whilst looking like they were inhabiting the, the physical space of of Chinese empire. Uh, this really reminded me actually of a, a couple of interviews back. Um, if uh, listeners uh, trawl through the archives, there this book, Sacred Mandates, which uh, uh, talks about the different uh, manifestations of of, of uh, Inner Asian and East Asian rule and how lots of these things were going on simultaneously and overlapping during this period. So I'd encourage uh, listeners to investigate that for a kind of look at the political side. But I think this is a wonderful compliment looking at the how it actually in physical space, these overlapping modes of governance and rule were playing out uh, it, it sort of in architectural form. Um, but yes, you, you outline here how in somewhat counterintuitive fashion, Kublai Khan uh, founded uh, Daidu, Dadu, uh, what, 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 what kind of became Beijing ultimately, um, and how this was the closest thing yet to a perfect rectangle. It was more heavily fortified and more rectangular, more rectilinear. Anybody interested in the Mongols, as I now know you are, and I, I also am, that's where I began. My dissertation was on, the, uh, was on Kublai Khan's imperial architecture. So it's been, you know, it's been a full circle. And if you want to know what I'm working on now, I'm finally having seen a lot of those buildings. That's what I'm next thing I do is going to be, you know, probably architecture of the UN dynasty. But Kublai, we all envision the Mongols storming across Asia. And maybe he need, you know, he maybe Kublai deserves a little more credit. Maybe he knew that. By having this Chinese advisor, he's got the opportunity to build literally a facade of China. And that's exactly what that city was. It's a perfect Chinese city, but it's also right there for the Ming. So that in 1368, when the Mongols go back north, the old rules that go back even before the Han Dynasty, this text goes back to the about 1200 BCE, those old rules are right there. And the Ming pick up and they in fact destroy Kublai City and they have Ming has a record keeper in 1396. As Kublai City is being pulled apart, the Ming emperor has someone writing down everything that's being pulled apart which he's going to put up again on the same axis. Right, right. Uh, sort of uh, somewhat... <laughs> it's amazing. It's familiar yeah. to the yeah. present, in, in some ways, in a very, very different context, the way that, for example, parts of uh, Shanghai, parts of the 19th century architecture of Shanghai have been pulled down and rebuilt in exactly the same form in the Tiendi and some of these areas, even in the last uh, 20 years. Um, that's quite a quite a curious parallel there. But uh, yeah, that, that does bring us forward um, quite helpfully to... Uh, Ming and, and Qing period, uh, and really, you know, we've shifted quite decisively here from Chang'an from the, the earlier period to to Beijing as the centre, um, where uh, the uh, kind of modular principles again are playing out, and where the the, the uh, vestiges of Kublai Khan's uh, very rectilinear city 
continue to be the spaces inhabited by Ming and Qing rulers. Um, and then this brings us back really to, you know, what are, I guess, some of the bigger headline grabbers of uh, Chinese architecture for anyone visiting China or reading about China, the Forbidden City once again, but also the Great Wall. So are these, are these, are these I mean, the, the wall, both, of course, are much older, but uh, what, what what is it that is helpful uh, about the Great Wall and about the Forbidden City for looking at the, the telling the Ming-Qing story um, of this later era of empire? So again, I think that for the Forbidden City for Ming-Qing, finally in the chapter about imperial architecture, I come out and say that it's really about ceremony, that maybe the reason that the Forbidden City's buildings are so simple and straightforward is because they're really about the emperor and his movement the uh, the Qing emperors had more than a hundred days a year where they were performing ceremonies in the buildings of the of and around Beijing and the Forbidden City, um, and and that's that that's what the you know the imperial buildings the one that we put on the cover is um, the ancestral temple, and uh, it's one of my favorite buildings because it looks like the Hall of Supreme Harmony, but it's not but only the emperor could enter there. Interestingly, if you go there today, you will, especially on the weekend, you'll often see it's closed because there will be a wedding. Chinese like to get married right now in the temple of heaven. But again, the, you know, the past has to serve the pre- in the um, ancestral temple. The past has to serve the present. But, but this is really going back to Han almost, where it's a city for the emperor and a city of ceremony. And this is one of the greatest challenges uh, of modern China moving forward. And I do tell some of that story in, in uh, one of the last chapters about people who really put their careers on the line and ultimately sometimes their lives on the line to try to save the city, to try to save Beijing's walls, to try to save one of Kublai's gates. There was a gate from Kublai City that was torn down in 1966. And a wonderful book that I will plug <laughs> is called, called Beijing Record. Uh, it's been translated into English under the title Beijing Record by a, a journalist named Wang Jun, who grew up watching people tear apart walls. Uh, Beijing City Wall suffered much more than the Great Wall. The Great Wall, I don't talk about it that much in this book, the Great Wall, I guess I would say, along with the Forbidden City, these are the two poster images of China. But the Great Wall is much more powerful as a symbol of China than anything it ever did. The northerners were always able to penetrate the wall. The wall never was complete. Um, it, it was most complete around the 15th century, but always, always easy to cut through. And um, it, to me, it's, it's really more for its symbolism of China seeing itself as a nation that can be surrounded by a wall and then moving inward to the forbidden, to the outer wall of the city and the imperial part of the city and then the forbidden part of the city. Right, and it's oh, and it's interesting that any you know people who <laughs> penetrated the wall, who got round, who came through. Well, what did they do when they got there? They ended up building cities that looked exactly like. Well, that's 
yeah, I do. I do make that point, and this is something that I'm thinking about more now. I I can give you a list of ten cities that Genghis uh, that Kublai's ancestors, beginning with Genghis, uh, destroyed. But when they come to China and when they come to other places where they need a walled city, they will build a walled city without question because they need it for whatever reason. It might just be symbolic. But the Mongols definitely did not build any pieces onto the Great Wall. That's there are some pieces that survive from them, but they're not. That's not something they're doing. Right, right, right. Well, and 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 so uh, having kind of had a bit of a look there at, at Ming and, and and Qing and these latter days of the uh, of the uh, Forbidden City and of, of Beijing and of the Imperial Era in in architecture. Um, that then moves us right up, I guess, to. Uh, the uh, modern era and to the encounter that China then had with uh, a new kind of outside world, different, very different from from the Mongols who came in. Um, and uh, in 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 the uh, sort of last substantive chapter, you talk about the European influence and indeed the Chinese influence on on Europe, the kind of reciprocal relationship on, on Europe and the United States too. Um, and and something quite poignant you say there as a, as a great way of, of bringing us into this uh, more recent period is that you know when the opium wars broke out uh, the architectural landscape of china had been extremely consistent for the last millennium and a half really but obviously some very decisive things were about to about to change um so uh, could you suggest uh, to us what what those changes were how some of those early adoptions within china of traditions particularly the bazaar uh, tradition that you, you kind of highlight. What what what, uh, what did this do for the Chinese architectural landscape? Uh, first of all, a lot of what I do is guided by Chinese research. Chinese understand the year 1840, so first Opium Wars, 1839 to 41 or 42. They they understand that as the end of pre-modern architecture and the beginning of modern. And it, it's part of this realization that China has to change. They, they will not be able to be a world power without changing, and yet they need some direction in how to change. And it's going to be after that that China's first generation of architects emerges. And this happens, um, really, it's, you know, we're not going to get into politics in this interview, and I never get into politics, but I have to say that one of the great things that the United States did um, following the Boxer Rebellion was to insist that the Chinese use money that was owed to us in reparations for the war, use a certain percentage of it for scholarships to send to educate Chinese students in especially the sciences, modern, modern study of, of phenomenon. And this boxer indemnity program is the beginning of Tsinghua University that people sometimes refer to as the MIT of China. It does have buildings that are Beaux-Arts style buildings. Well, the connection there is that uh, <clears throat> a preparatory school, K, uh, nine through grades nine through 12, was set up on the campus of Tsinghua University. It was called Tsinghua Preparatory School. Students had to take an exam. So in a sense, this is already self-selecting among the elite who knew that this school existed. Classes were taught in English. And after finishing preparatory school, there was a four-year college. And from then, anyone who made it beyond would have their 
transportation and four years of education in the United States paid for with the assumption that they would return to China and build a new China. And this this group of people has been very well studied. They were very patriotic, and most of them did go back to China. And for reasons that people really can't um, entirely explain, about 20 Chinese students decided to come to the United States and study architecture. And for reasons that we even more can't explain, uh, most of them ended up at the University of Pennsylvania, and they studied with a man named Paul Cray, Paul Philip, Paul Philippe Cray, who had been hired around 1903 by the dean of the architecture school at Penn at that time. He had gone to Paris and decided to bring Beaux Arts education to the United States. And this first generation of architects studied architecture at Penn from Paul Cray in his studio. And the methodology was Beaux-Arts methodology. And there are all, all kinds of interesting twists and turns. Um, Beaux-Arts is grounded in the past and grounded in taking the spirit of antiquity and bringing it forward through a chronology of Renaissance and Baroque and Neo-Baroque and Neoclassical all the way to buildings in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia that Paul Cray was designing. But the students immediately latched on to this modern tradition grounded in its historical past. And as filial sons, they became filial students. And this group, known as the first generation, founded the major architecture schools, including the program at Tsinghua, they went back to China. They founded the first firms. They taught architecture. This is the first time the word architect is used, and it actually probably derives from the Japanese word for architect. Japan had gone through this kind of modernization with Europe a little bit earlier. And the this group uh, did the first historic preservation. They did preservation at the Temple of Heaven they did a little bit of preservation in the Forbidden City. This is very well documented. And even today, we're now fourth generation. Um, a student will, tr- an architect will trace his lineage to which generation and which school. Now, the irony is in uh, 1950, the Russians become advisors. And the Russians come to the Soviets, I'm sorry, the Soviets come to Tsinghua University where the program in modern architecture is set up, modeled after the Beaux-Arts. And even as the people who had trained in the United States are heavily criticized for being unpatriotic and not forward in their thinking, the buildings that are become models for the new design of socialist Marxist socialist architecture in Beijing have gone through their own transformation in the Soviet Union by way of Russia, by way of the architects who had studied in Paris at uh, L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in the 18th and the 19th century. Right, right. So this is extraordinary convergence, really. It was was incredible convergence. Uh, And the other other thing that I relate in that chapter um, is this whole concept of chinoiserie. 
because China, this was a world of colonialism and Orientalism and all the negative aspects of people who fought China and the Boxer Rebellion coming to China and wanting to take from China. They were also taking Chinese designs and putting pavilions in Tivoli Gardens and Kew Gardens. And Catherine the Great had a Chinese house in one of her summer palaces. So this is China. Chinese architecture has become part of a global environment. I think China herself probably was not aware. I've always wondered if the Qianlong Emperor knew that people in Europe were commissioning buildings with what looked like Chinese uh, upturned Chinese roof eaves on the end. But that's going on right up to when Beaux-Arts becomes the fashion, which really makes a kind of gentler um, turn towards modernism with symmetrical buildings with highly decorated facades and and, and uh, the bilateral symmetry of two towers and things like that. Right. No, exactly. You you say it, it's a very uh, sort of uh, poignant thing, I think, that, that it was Beaux-Arts with its kind of uh, gestures towards antiquity and classicism in, in, a, in a European or American tradition that actually allowed features of Chinese architecture to make it forward into this period of modernity. Um, but, I mean... That is only one of an enormous number of uh, terrific and uh, incredibly thought-provoking insights that really are there throughout the book, um, you, which you conclude by coming back to the Forbidden City and, and looking at uh, Chang'an Avenue as, as a new uh, uh, sort of um, canvas on which the kind of revolutionary city was planned out, a new axis for the city. But we probably don't have time to to delve into all of that just as we have um, skipped over a great many, you know, incredibly rich and uh, absolutely unmissable parts of the book um but uh, so, so uh, thank you very much uh, again for appearing that's here it's it, we've taken up a fair amount of your time um you hinted at some things that you were working on uh, at present um perhaps I'll, I'll ask you as a sort of uh, final question what uh, what those are a little bit more and what projects you have uh, on the go at the moment uh, i'm working on a book called the borders of chinese architecture <laughs> that that it takes this that is driven by buildings. And I look how far beyond China, I can see a Chinese building and try to figure out why. So this takes me, of course, to Korea and Japan, but it also takes me to Russia and it also takes me uh, somewhat to Europe. But it's, it's the buildings that define my borders, not the actual physical borders. So that's, that's something that I hope maybe, you know, might be out in a couple of years. But I've now finally come back to the Yuan Dynasty, which, as I mentioned, is where I began. Um, It's taken me a career to see all the buildings that Kublai especially, or the uh, builders from circa 1260 to circa 1360, had a hand in building. And it is a time when there is some multiculturalism and when Iran comes into the mix and Russia comes into the mix and um, that's I'm, I'm trying now to finally write that, but based on buildings instead of based on texts. Oh, fantastic! Well, that's yeah, that's a, a wonderful kind of coming full circle, as you mentioned. Um, and I think we'll be very excited to check out both that and the the, the borders book, which I think will also be a yeah, great complement to this book in a sense that you know really it, it, it traces different. this genealogy. It's a, it's a 
different kind of history Precisely. of Chinese architecture. Precisely. Yeah. Well, that'll be that'll be wonderful. Um, Nancy, thank you so much again for appearing on the show. It was uh, a well, real thank pleasure you very talking much. to you. It was my pleasure. Uh, listeners, thank you too uh, for tuning in and uh, clicking and downloading and so on. Uh, this was the uh, New Books of East Asian Studies podcast. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back again with you very soon. Goodbye. Bye.